John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. As we continue walking through John chapter 1, focusing on what does it mean that Jesus has come? What is the significance of what we're celebrating this Christmas season? It says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God, as we quiet ourselves before your word, we pray that you would take the powerful truths that are contained in these words, and Lord, you would help us to see your glory. Lord, with the, the eyes of our hearts and minds, we ask that you would help us to be able to look on Jesus in a special way to this morning to where we see the glorious truths that he has revealed about your heart and we are moved to celebrate and rejoice. So Lord, we ask for this, that you would bring us into focus, calm our minds and hearts, and speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Wendell Berry, in his book, Jaber Crow, has this beginning to a chapter where he says, telling a story is like reaching into a granary full of wheat and drawing out a handful. There's always more to tell than can be told. As almost any barber can testify, there's also more than needs to be told and more than anybody wants to hear. That's how I feel when, when we stand before a passage like this about the incarnation where there's really the entire Bible is wrapped up in these verses. Like everything the Bible wants us to know about the glory of God is contained in here like a full granary. And I know that what we can do today is take one handful out <laughs> and hope to just rejoice in it. And that, actually, I told Annie last night uh, before we went to bed that I felt like someone who could say way, way too much. And you might not be ready to hear it all. But that's what this passage is like. Jan John 1.14, even in itself, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14 itself is like a granary with all the stories of the Bible wrapped up inside. And I'm going to show you what I mean by that. And today I'm going to try to take just a handful and hope that you can see the glory of Jesus as we celebrate Christmas. In John 1.14 through 18, what we have is John is finishing up his introduction to Jesus before he tells us all about his life. And he introduces us to Jesus and his coming. And he gives us two word pictures. There are two word pictures here. 
that really fill out the imagery of what he means that Jesus dwelled among us and what it, the significance is about this person, Jesus, who he's introducing. And these word pictures help bring kind of the emotional, real impact of Jesus' life home to us. Because we're talking about the heart of theologically what we call the incarnation. We're going to talk about what that means, but this is, this is the big truth of Jesus taking on flesh and dwelling among us. But it is such a massive thing. It's such a wonder. It's such a mystery that God, the infinite God of the universe, could take on limited, finite human flesh. That we have to stand back and say it's a wonder and a mystery. What does it mean? And why would God do this? If you become too familiar, you can't really wrap your heart around just the significance of celebrating Christmas. God took on flesh and dwelled among us. And the incarnation, the main thing I want you to see today is that the incarnation is a wonder that John shows is best captured in some simple word pictures that you and I can understand and come to see the glory of God in. Now the incarnation is at the heart of Christmas and the heart of the Christian faith. When we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about the God who has come in the flesh. And before I jump into the details of this passage, I thought it might be good to give you just five facts you should know from the Bible about this doctrine, the doctrine of the incarnation. I'm going to run through them really quick. They're going to be on the screen. The first one is that the word incarnation literally is in flesh, as in human flesh. God appeared in human flesh. The Latin preposition in along with the Latin word for flesh or meat, is carne, incarnation. That's what it means. And so if you need to use something funny or weird like chili con carne to remember it, do whatever you got to take to remember incarnation means God takes on flesh. That's what we're talking about. Number two, as we've read in this passage earlier in the season, what the incarnation means is that the divine son that always existed took to himself a complete human nature. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's unique among all persons of the universe in that he contains both the fullness of God's divine qualities and attributes and in taking on human flesh, took on the fullness of what it means for us to be human. Fully God, fully man. Now, Back in 451 AD, the Council of Chalcedon got together to try to just, just narrow out what does that mean? And I thought I would just blow your minds with some of what they mean so you can see how deep this is. They say about Jesus, he is one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, that's divine nature, human nature, unconfusedly. So not just like a mixture up of them together, but both of them present and full, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, that means in the person of Jesus, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved and both divine and human concurring, being at the same time in one person and in one hypostasis, one being. This is Jesus, God and man. Not as though he was parted or divided into two persons, but one in the self-same Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ. 
All of that is wrapped up in Jesus. We're not just talking about another person. We're talking about a person unique in all the universe, fully God, fully man. He took on the entirety of our human nature. Number three, that means that the virgin birth of Jesus sets him apart from the corruption of human nature due to sin. Theologically, we understand that we joined by birth to the first Adam and having had sin passed down to us, we don't just have a human nature, we have a corrupted, weak human nature that is prone to sin and wandering from God. But Jesus alone, born in the, in, through the supernatural conception of the Holy Spirit, shares fully in our human nature, but not in our corruption. That he could be fully what God intended human nature to be, and God has given that. So although born in like manner as every human person has been born, Jesus was conceived as a miraculous creation of the Holy Spirit, something unique and new that points us to the future new creation where he is the new Adam who reigns over the world as God's image bearer. He's set apart. Number three, The incarnation means that the taking on of human nature was a costly emptying of certain benefits of the divine nature. Philippians chapter 2 makes it clear that when, when the divine Son of God took on human nature, that by taking that on, he received limitations through that human nature that were an emptying of his rights and privileges being God himself. It says he didn't consider God a thing to be held onto, a grasping. He didn't say, I've got the right to have this, I shouldn't have to humble myself, but he humbled himself in the form of a servant and took on human flesh and it was costly it was a costly emptying of certain benefits of the divine nature number five the incarnation makes jesus the only mediator between god and man because of his divine nature he can truly reveal god to us what we see jesus doing is the true image of the heart of god but because of his human nature He could truly bear our sins as a representative on the cross. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says he's the only mediator between God and man. The way in which we can experience God's presence and be reconciled to him. These are five things I think everyone should know about the incarnation. And here in this passage, as we then explore this big theological idea, we find that he helps us helps us experience the relational significance of it and John focuses the significance of the incarnation in two word pictures here and we have reason to celebrate because of these the first one is this he shows us that Jesus is the true tabernacle Jesus is the true tabernacle of God's presence now that may not mean much to you initially but I want to unpack that so that it comes to mean something significant to you in the Bible If you were to read the Bible from end to end, Genesis to Revelation, you would find that the Bible isn't just a a sort of separated, random set of 66 different books, but you would find that God carefully and purposefully revealed himself throughout history in a way that made sense. And it's tied together through some master themes, huge themes that help explain who we are, who God is, what it is that's wrong with us, and how we can be brought back into real relationships 
relationship with him. And, and, and so these themes help us see the big storyline of the Bible. And one of those themes is God's dwelling place. The theme of dwelling with God or the theme of God's presence. And, and that's what we see when we talk about this passage. When we see this passage here in verse 14, I want to point something out to you that will give it new meaning to you. Here in verse 14, we see Jesus as the completion of this major theme of God's dwelling or presence given to mankind. Now it says, if you read in the, in the Bible we read, which was the ESV at the beginning, notice in John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It does sound significant that Jesus was God who is now dwelling among us. That's no small deal. But in the context of the whole Bible, there's an even more vivid illusion. You know, an illusion is like when you can use one word to kind of throw all of this imagery out. And here, that word, it's translated dwelt in English, but the underlying word in Greek is tabernacle. Tabernacle, the place of God's presence. It's tabernacle. The word he translated dwell means literally to set one's tabernacle up among us. As a verb like this, it means that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you realize that this theme of tabernacle and presence has to do with setting up and anticipating the presence of God renewed into the midst of his people. That, that we would see his glory and experience it. That's the language that he's using. And so when he says of Jesus that he dwelled among us, he said, he's really trying to pull on this whole theme. And I'm going to try to pull that thread right now for you in this time together. The tabernacle in the Old Testament, of course, was a tent in which God's manifest presence among the people of Israel was present in a special way, but only under great care. The presence of God. What made them special and unique as they came out of Egypt is that God was with them. They could, in some manner, experience the presence of God with them. The knowledge that he was with them in their experiences through this tabernacle. It was a symbol and promise of God's dwelling with his people. So what's the story there? Well, it's a story about God's desire to dwell with us and a story about our sin that separates us from him. You see, God's presence or dwelling is what made the experience of Adam and Eve unique in the Garden of Eden. It was like a natural temple where they experienced being with God. In fact, it shows us that you and I were created to be with God. We were created to know him to have a, a deep relational connection, a satisfying sense that he had given us our identity and he was there to bless us and for us to experience the fullness of joy that comes from being in his glorious presence. This is what Adam and Eve experienced in Eden. But God's presence or dwelling is what they rejected when they sinned in the garden. They said that's not very valuable. In fact, this looks really valuable. I'd rather have this than have you. And so that's the essence of what they rejected in the garden. God's presence or dwelling is what they rejected when they knew they had sinned and then hid in the bushes and fled from his presence to feel safe in their sin. God's presence or dwelling 
was what was restricted from them when they were put outside the garden. And the way was guarded by an angel of justice and judgment saying that they couldn't enter his presence because of their sin. That actually to come near to a holy God in our sin means we would receive justice for our wickedness. The justice our sin deserves. And so Adam and Eve, we find them set outside the garden, set outside the presence of God. And, and then God begins to teach us how we could be brought back to him. God's presence or dwelling was what the Israelites had in a special way as God freed them from Egypt and was bringing them into the promised land. They saw it as a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night that was with them. And they followed his presence. They walked in the guidance of his presence. They were comforted by his presence. They were given confidence to leave Egypt by the presence of God. They knew that they could overcome the power of Pharaoh, not because of their own strength, but because God was with them. It was God's presence. God's presence or dwelling is what the people rejected when they grumbled for water and desired to return to Egypt. God's presence or dwelling was what the people rejected when they made a golden calf to worship and rejected the God who had rescued them at Mount Sinai. God's presence or dwelling was what Moses knew was most important and more important than going to the promised land without it when he said, Lord, if you won't go with us, we won't go. God's presence among them required, we find through the giving of the law, God's presence required that they walk in holiness and justice and that their sin and committing of sin be atoned for be covered, dealt with. It was the reason for the giving of the Old Testament law that God could dwell in their midst and they would be his people and he would be their God. God's presence among them would be the source of their real blessing. God's presence and dwelling among them would mean that their wickedness and their sin would incur judgment and justice. We read it through the whole Old Testament. The entire law given by Moses was a way of teaching people in some manner the significance and value of God's presence among his people. It was both valuable and dangerous to those who considered it nothing. Dangerous to those who were unjust, who had sinned before God and hadn't properly confessed their sin and had it atoned for and covered by the blood of the sacrifice. The tabernacle, which was at the center of the original giving of the law. The law, so much of it was about setting this tabernacle of God's presence up among the people and how they should interact with it. What, what it should mean that God dwells in the middle of them and they belong to him and how they should live, what they shouldn't do, what they could, and all of these things that were meant to be symbolic ways of showing that God's presence is a presence of holy justice and abundant love together. In a sense, the tabernacle at the center in the giving of the law was designed to be a sort of house for God's presence that would keep it in, but keep it with them. Because as sinners, they weren't able to be welcomed into the fullness of God's presence. 
God's presence dwelt in that time in, in, in a symbolic, manifest way in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. You would enter an outer court and there would be things going on for the ritual sacrifices and then there was the holy place which some of the priests would go into and minister but the people weren't allowed in. And then there was the Holy of Holies, the holiest of holy places where the presence of the Ark of the Covenant which symbolized God's promised covenant of relational presence with them it was there and the glory of God was present among it and and only one time a year was anyone allowed to go into the presence of God and only after the sins of the people had been confessed over the lamb that would carry away their sin and, and, and the, the, the rituals of sacrifice had been performed and, and there was a sense of cleansing for the high priest, could he go into that place and offer worship and incense on behalf of God's people? They weren't welcome in their sin into God's presence. By considering it not valuable, (laughs) it was removed from their experience, from our experience. The tabernacle was like a drama enacted in and of itself that said we need God's presence and dwelling in our life more than anything, but because of sin, we would only experience it as judgment and destruction if we had it. This is the problem of the Old Testament. It poses a question. What can it make it possible for a holy God to dwell with people who have sinned? Or how can I have clean hands and a pure heart to go into God's presence to be able to be with Him when I know that I'm sinful? And if we have the sense that in God's presence it is safe to harbor sin and live out wickedness and injustice, we're foolish. Because the presence of God is like a refining fire over wickedness. And joy for the pure at heart. The psalmist asks, who could enter the presence of God? Who is holy enough, who has clean hands and a pure heart that could possibly do that? And the answer is not us. Not us. But see, The tabernacle was never the end goal. The sort of dwelling with God was unsatisfying. Real atonement cannot be pictured through a lamb. Sin was a worse offense than the life of an animal and the cost so much greater that it could only be pointing to something else. There was nothing we could exchange for the price of our sin and give to God that would satisfy his justice. So in the fullness of time, God sent forth, it says, his own son the word became flesh and tabernacled among us god took up flesh and set his tabernacle among us in a way not before seen or experienced in jesus christ so that we could see what was hidden behind the veil so to speak what God was really like because that would because in Jesus we would be able to become close to God there would be something significant that Jesus would do that would make it possible for sinners to draw near to God and experience grace as they also experienced truth we wouldn't have to hide and cover our sin and pretend so that we could seem to be okay with God, we could actually be exposed for as ugly and broken and corrupt and weak as we are, but yet covered 
and welcome. Not on our own merit, but grace upon grace. In the merits of Jesus, we could experience the glory of God. What is this God really like who lay hidden behind the law and the rituals and the veil of the temple? He's like Jesus. He's like Jesus. Full of grace and truth. When we read this gospel John is giving us, we are seeing the glory of God on display, tabernacled in Jesus. He's life-changing. He's world-shaking. There's no one like him. No one ever thought about life and relationships in God like Jesus ever did. And he had such an impact that we can't unthink what he has shown us about God. The world was not spiritually and religiously oriented towards God the way the post-Christian world even is as we try to think about God because Jesus blew our minds about what God was like, full of grace and full of truth, and we can't unsee that glory. You can miss it, you can ignore it, but Jesus forever changed the way we think about that God hidden behind the veil. The terms grace and truth are used twice here as what we should see about the glory of God in Jesus Christ. He says at the end of verse 14, we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the Father. Unique son, full of grace and truth. Down in verse 18, for, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, limited, symbolic, pointing to this need for God's presence. It's unavailability to us as sinners. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Something totally new. The hidden glory now revealed God is so gracious. God is so gracious that he wants to dwell with us even though we had rejected him for so long. But he only does so on the basis of truth. On an invitation to truly admit and see who we are. You see, in Jesus, we see the gracious pursuit of God giving himself to the world again and again with the offer of really dwelling with him. We also see the truth through Jesus' clear teaching and display of the ugly cost of sin. You see, God will welcome us in grace, in undeserved favor, if we will have him in Christ. But we can only have him in Christ if our sins have been laid on him by faith as we confess the truth of our own unworthiness. In Christ we see the glory of God. His grace offers himself to us and he alone absorbs and pays for the infinite cost of our sin by speaking the truth and being nailed to the cross. You see, to know the real glory of God is to know it through Christ. He pursues us to bless us without us deserving it. And he brings us near to him and dwells with us at a cost far greater than you and I could ever imagine. Amazing glory, especially when we think of our own real relationships to one another. We often will not pursue one another if we think the other doesn't merit it. And we're unwilling to pay the real cost of being together. And the law could only point to God dwelling with us. But Jesus Christ alone could give it to us in himself. And it was a costly, costly gift that Jesus offered. 
You see, Jesus in himself shows us the glory of God, that God desires a relationship with you to bring you into his dwelling, that you would have a relationship with him, and he desires it so much that he's willing to pay the full cost of your sin's justice in himself. Grace and truth. And and what that does is it tells us that there are two incredible ways we can miss out on this gospel story, this good news and this offer. One, by believing spirituality is an act of our devotion towards God that makes us right with him. If we get good enough, if we do enough things, if we say, you know, if we work hard enough, we'll be able to get to him. This is the American way, right? Discipline and effort. But only when we're willing to actually humble ourselves and say, I'm not really who I try to pretend to be. I'm not. I'm not able, I'm not worthy. And recognize that God has brought that gift to us in Christ. Are we able to really experience reconciliation with God? I'm a worse sinner than I thought I was. It runs deeper. The layers go down further. But yet God has come in the person of Jesus to say to you, you can be welcomed home. There's the other mistake. It's that God doesn't care about sin and sin isn't very costly. That God's a professional forgiver and we're professional sinners and it's just kind of the arrangement. But see, in Jesus, we find out that sin is incredibly costful. It's costly. It's infinitely costly. I mean, we can see it in our world, in our lives. We see the wreckage that it does. We don't often like to speak truthfully about it. We don't like to be blunt about it. We avoid the truth, right? It's not that big a deal. It's not that costly. But, but really what we see in Jesus is the presence of God given back to the world. And in that world, such rejection that he was nailed to the cross. That the glory of God was given to us. And sin is so bad that even in that reoffering of himself to us, we were willing to say, no, not for me. And yet, yet Jesus went to the cross and through doing so, he bore our sin He bore all the rejection that we've given towards God and he paid the price for it in the most costly way. An incredible cost. We talked about the incarnation. It means that Jesus gave up the privileges uh, of God's divine glory to dwell among us and in doing so to be crucified as a worthless servant. No glory seen. His glory denied. Uh, utter pain. And that's captured in the second word picture that we see in this passage, that Jesus is the true son of the Father. He's the true son of the Father's heart. As you guys know, sending a child out into the world on their own is an experience as a parent that you can't really feel the significance of it until you've done it. I won't go into a lot of details, but if you talk to my kids, they'll be glad to tell you what I was like as we dropped our oldest off for college this fall. Um, There was one moment in like a McDonald's parking lot where I kind of lost it. You know, it, it, it caught me off guard, although I was maybe anticipating it to some degree, but I was a bit of an emotional mess. You know, sending someone out into the world like that is is like giving a piece of your heart away and and feeling like you never have it quite so close again. 
This sending away is wonderful. It's, it's important. It's powerful, necessary for our kids to mature part of human experience that God has designed and purposed so that we can come to know him. And for a parent, it's hard. We love them. They're so close to our heart. You see, in, in the ESV, verse 18 reads, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I read eight, verse 18 there earlier this week, and it just sounded clunky and technical to me uh, a bit, and, uh, and a bit difficult, like, what does that even mean? And, and I like to take the word of God seriously and, and try to dig into it and understand. When I run into something that just seems like technically unimportant words, I usually assume I'm not getting it or there's something to discover. And so, uh, in fact, as we were studying it as a staff, uh, Amin, who, who led our prayer this morning, pointed out that in Farsi it says, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten one, God himself, the one in the arms of the Father, he has made us known. So we looked a bit at the, the Greek in which John originally wrote it and saw that this was a really straightforward translation from Farsi and it made it feel incredibly more significant. And, and in fact, I went and read it in the King James Version and, and, it, said, and it describes Jesus as, and it says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son who is in the Father's bosom has made him known. Now that's a really old word for inside the arms and the hug and the embrace of someone. And, and so you've got this picture where he's saying, how valuable is this son that's been sent out to the world from the father? And it says he's the son that is so close to the father's heart that has always been right there within his arms grasp, within his, his, his hold, that, that he's close and been drawn near to God's heart. This is the picture. The only begotten one, Jesus. God himself, John 1.1. 1, 1. The one who is in the arms of the Father, who the Father rejoices to draw near, who's got this deep relationship. He has made the glory of God known. That's where this glory is coming from. He sent him out. The Father sent him out into a world where he would be rejected. John just got done talking about his own rejecting him and his glory being denied or not seen because of the blindness of our sin. And so if you were to read it in the King James Version, it would say the one in the bosom of the Father in order to indicate what is pictured, the place of closeness and embrace in the Father's arms is where this Son that has been sent to us born for us has come from when we have Jesus here making his tabernacle among us we have the son of God who leaves that closeness and embrace of the father's loving presence to go into a far country where sin reigns and abounds to seek and pursue sinners that would be hopeless without him the cost to God is that the father and son experience it, the, the cost to God is, is that the Father and Son experience through Jesus dwelling with us a sort of sending away from the loving protection of the Father. The Son does not just make an appearance. He takes on our full humanity. He lives 
as the presence of God in a world where the presence of God is not seen as valuable. He experiences the reality of sin as he takes on his people's sin as their sin bearer. And he goes to the cross where the wrath of judgment and justice is poured out on him. And it's all God on both sides of the equation. The Father pouring out his justice on sin at the cross. The Son experienced the cost and paying for it with his blood. And when he does, the curtain of the temple where God's presence dwelt and the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom because the objective was accomplished. God had made a way for sinners to be welcomed into his presence and his presence to dwell with them. The price had been paid and it was infinite. It was the horrific death of Jesus. The glory is to see that this is what God is like. Willing to pay this cost to give us himself and to dwell with us. That kind of glory. Ongoing, never-ending pursuit so that we could experience forgiveness and reconciliation far beyond what we deserve. Grace upon grace upon grace. Three things come from that. First one, truth. When you know God is this willing to dwell with you, you don't need to hide in your sin. Part of celebrating Christmas is to be honest people who confess and forsake their sins Don't fear the consequences. We know that the consequences of sin are temporary and we trust God fully as we become people of truth. It also means grace. You can live with great expectation of God's restoring presence. Let go of control. Let him give you what you need. He gives grace upon grace. No matter how bad you may feel you've messed up your life or circumstances, if you truly confess your sin and trust in Christ, God is sanctifying you to be in his presence and experience him more deeply. In communion, pursue time with God in prayer and in the word. Set your attention on him. Carve out time in a season like this to be with him, to reflect on these truths, to think about what it means for your life, to respond to his gracious invitation into his presence. Go to the throne of grace just to be with him. And see your life in the light of his powerful presence. The word became flesh. And he dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Lord, I pray right now as we go into this time of being reminded of your glory through the cross, the broken bread, and your shed blood. Lord, that you would help us see the great love that was displayed in the sending of your Son. God, I pray that you would make us people of truth, that, Lord, we would be people who confess our sins before you, who don't put on displays of false performance, but desire to be renewed by your grace in truth.
Lord, I pray for the person here who maybe came in not knowing how they could have a relationship with God that they would hear today that you've invited them because of Christ to come to you in simple faith that you've done what is necessary at the cross and you welcome them. You forgive. You give new life and hope. Lord, I pray that you would give us a warm heart towards your guidance and your wisdom knowing Lord, that it is your joy to give us your presence and your blessing that we would seek you and pursue you as our greatest good. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.